From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 661, DevOps for DBAs with guest Kendra Little. Recorded Thursday, October 31st, 2019. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts, LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. Thanks for listening to Run As Radio. My guest today is Kendra Litterell, who is a DevOps advocate for, at Redgate and a Microsoft Certified Master in SQL Server. She teaches IT leaders, developers, and DBAs around the world on how to best integrate database development and delivery into the software development cycle. Hello. Hi, Richard. It's great to be here. And we've met before at various things and so on. I, I'm kind of shocked you've never been on the show before. I'm vaguely embarrassed about that, actually. Well, I'm really, really happy to be here. It's um, I got to see an episode be filmed live at the Intersections Conference in the past. So now mm-hmm. it's like, I think I used the word squee when I reported I was going to be on the show in <laughs> Slack. <laughs> At work. I was like, I get to be on Run As Radio. Those SQL Q&A shows, we do, of course, we do them twice a year, right? For the spring show and the fall show. They're really interesting if you pull them out on your own and listen to them because you can see the evolution of the questions being asked by DBAs to the so-called experts, our friends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because they are evolving. experts. Yes. they, They are my friends, so I can tease them, right? Okay, but looks like Bob Ward's an expert. The rest of us are just making it. (laughs) We've set the standard, (laughs) and then the rest of us are like, "Uh, there's Bob, and and then there's, okay, yeah, there's Bob. Yeah, there's Bob. (laughs) (laughs) But No, I know what you mean about the questions, though. I mean, I still remember when I would go to conferences, and there would be sessions about cloud at the conference, and all the DBAs would kind of, like, pull back. Like, (laughs) yeah, like, ooh, that's not a thing, you know. And then there was kind of acceptance, and now there is even interest and eagerness. Yeah, and and real questions about, I need to do more with this. How do I get it, take advantage of this? And, you know, of course, I met you as a SQL Server person, but you've got a strong background in in sort of overall operations? I do. I was really lucky when I first started edging towards the database server, as I kind of call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a term of Brent Ozar's. Uh, he has it, people ask, how do you get to be, you know, a database specialist? And it can be hard to get that first job because I have a degree in philosophy. I don't have a degree in databases. Well, yeah. And there aren't really degrees in databases. No. So when you want to specialize in this, the, the only real thing you can do is kind of get a job and then edge towards the database server. And I was real lucky that the first company I got a job with who would kind of give a chance to me was really strong at operations and was just starting out on the whole extreme programming. I just, I love that term. (laughs) Oh my goodness, what a term. To the max. And we were figuring out things like, what is the role that QA play? Mm -hmm. What is agile development all about? How do you do paired programming without sharing germs? (laughs) (laughs) 
You're gonna that share was it. a big thing. Mm-hmm. And then how do we do this and how do we do changes to the database without constantly blowing everything up? Oh, yeah. We had this fairly complex ecosystem of relational databases as well as this homegrown Hadoop-like thing in the mix. Oh, my. This was before we even had Hadoop. <laughs> uh, so we had to figure out how that all worked in uh, what at the time we just called called Agile. So um, got to learn a lot about operations and how to evolve it at that job, which was really, I, I'm so lucky and so fortunate I got to work with those folks. Uh, working, you know, with smart people who are good communicators is is really the best foundation you can have for your career. And they're also interested in pushing against the edges of their abilities, right? Like I've often met great communicators and, and great technologists, but living in a safe space too. Like that, that third aspect of, I want to take some chances and try some new things. That's also rare. Right. You know, it is that hunger to both learn and to try to question what is it that we're doing that we're comfortable with, but that maybe it would be better if we changed it. Yeah. Um, which that's really, really hard, especially for us database folks, because I mean, and looking back there, there are a lot of things I look back now and I'm like, oh, if only I had realized right. you're holding on to this this guardian role. And maybe that is something that you're comfortable with, but maybe that is something you should question and give up a little bit. <laughs> I have I have described a DBA trying to get away from people branding themselves around product as a steward of data, that they have a trust and responsibility around data, no matter where it's stored, how it's mm-hmm. gathered, it needs care and feeding. Yes. Yeah. And that is true. And I think that one important thing about that is that this guardian of data is moving more and more into a role where they need to share that guardianship. Mm -hmm. They are an important foundation of that, but a lot of the role is in helping others also be guardians of data in the right way or be able to do their jobs quickly without having to worry about guarding the data. So that you're either kind of making a lot of this happen automatically for things like not exposing sensitive data in the development process, for example, right. but also not making yourself a blocking point, right? Not putting yourself right at the end of the software development lifecycle and be like, okay, you've done all your work, but I can still like hit stop here is the very last thing. Right. It's a very comfortable place, but that's not, that's not the right type of stewardship. So is the line guardian, but not gatekeeper? That, that is a good way to put it, okay. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you want to be an enabler of people to use data responsibly. Right. But uh, but still have that responsibility to, do, to take care of data. Yeah. And you also want to figure out what are the ways in which I can use tooling and automation to help people know when they should seek out somebody in my role. Oh, interesting. Like when they're doing something that may kind of be a, a little problematic. And and try to automate that as much as possible because the truth is this is not just about DBAs. This is also specialists in IT are all going through this. You can't attend every stand-up meeting for yeah. every team that develops code that hits systems you work with. It would be great if you could, but you're not going to be able to do that. So we need to be able to start using our tooling to help figure out, all right, what is the actual way we can really help support these teams without trying to be in eight places at once? Right. A bit more self-service and a bit more of allowing them to be successful without constant supervision. Exactly. Yeah. And flagging these things in the system and saying, okay, this is a really risky area. We have messed this up 
once or twice before. Okay, maybe a hundred times. <laughs> how and, and working with people and saying, how can we make it so that when we're changing things in this area, this automatically triggers like a mini architecture conversation, right? right? Because there's actually ways we can do that with tooling now. But a lot of it is just speaking up and saying, okay, with the particular tools that we're using, what are the best ways that we can identify when we go into this area and it, make it so that you don't have to remember, you know, all these things about the database that you don't know? Because as a developer, they have to remember so much stuff. Right. Yeah, true enough. And, uh, and yeah, prior, they're going to have a tough time prioritizing data in that scenario, for sure. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so I think it is a, a lot around starting to be more strategic mm -hmm. and um, starting to ask for help. Uh, in way, A lot of times we feel like, um, you know, when you are that gatekeeper, you don't feel like you're the person who gets to ask for help, right? Yeah. Because you're like, oh, I'm the responsible one. I'm the one that, that gets blamed. And you feel backed into a corner. Once you get out of that corner a little bit, you start realizing that, in fact, it makes you stronger as a team member when you can point things out, when you can point out a trend and say, yeah, we've got this, this problem that keeps happening in this area around uh, the database. I need some help making it so that we make this better. Right. That actually helps you. But it's really hard to do when you're in that gatekeeping position, right? So you become empowered to use that to advance your career a bit more. And you learn a lot more stuff and build a lot more relationships that way. I, I'm reading between the lines here and thinking in terms of if I'm waiting as a DBA until somebody complains about performance of an application, I've already waited too long. That I, that I should be watching how applications are using the data and seeing the responsibility of data for performance and maybe coming to them. And right. saying, I'm seeing a trend, we're slowing down. Sooner or later, this is going to be unacceptable uh, to some, to our customers. Right? In the end, it matters to the customers. Uh, yeah. You know, let's let's work together to try and, and get over this. Yeah. It's, so it's really interesting. I was writing uh, questions for a survey the other day. And uh, one of the questions is around how do you, how do you monitor performance in production? And, you know, the options range from, uh, we let our customers tell us about the problem. Nice. That is <laughs> to, one kind of you know, very proactive. We've got a separate environment that we throw all this load at and we very proactively identify things before it. But in writing the question, I realized, you know, there's always these weird edge cases. Um, it was years ago. I think it was Nick Craver at Stack Overflow who I was chatting with. And he was like, you know, the truth is that a lot of our monitoring is Twitter. Right. So it is <laughs> they have the other customer. monitoring too. That's not all they use. But his point is, when anything goes wrong on their site, they re so many people use the site and they yeah. use it so actively and the load is so hard to reproduce for all the different parts of it that that they will hear, even if they have like a professional monitoring system set up to be reactive, which I believe they do, mm -hmm. but that they're going to get the tweets faster because <laughs> Twitter just moves faster. Yeah, Twitter does move faster. I know that my, my show is published late by Twitter, you know. <laughs> And, I, and literally, if I'm an hour late, there there are yeah. messages on Twitter. It's like, it's, yeah. It's so coming. I think at very high scale, uh, there's a, a a thing of okay, your customers are going to monitor for you whether you like it or not. You yes. can try, and then at a you know at a very that's it. That answer may get chosen from people who haven't progressed much at all as well. But it's it's kind of interesting thinking about it. I I do absolutely feel like establishing ways to try to proactively identify performance problems long before it hits production is very, very valuable. It's incredibly difficult still, though, is the truth yeah. um, at any sort of scale. It's really, really tricky to because this is the thing. It's really hard to know what your users are going to do mm -hmm. most of the time. Users are crazy. They are <laughs> in a good way. I mean, that's full of opportunity. I think this is 
part of the whole DevOps thing. This is part of why we want to be able to release software in small chunks and we want to be able to do it quickly is part of this process is while we're releasing uh, little things, we want to also observe our customers and see, are, are they using this like we thought they would? Or do they actually want something quite different than what we thought they wanted? Right. Yeah. Or uh, In the old days for the database, we would set out on this march to release this, you know, quarter's worth of development work to the database. And it would take us a whole week weekend minimum to roll it out. And then there'd be a big go, no go at the end. And more than once back in those early jobs, when, you know, before we made this transition, we would release things out and we'd be like, oh yeah, people are going to love this. And people weren't that excited. Yeah, <laughs> you're, we know you're emotionally invested in it. You've just spent three months working on it. We yeah. just don't know if yeah. the customer is, which, you know, this is very much that DevOps story of one of the nice things about iterating in these little chunks and seeing these new features out in the wild all the time is that you do get more feedback and see what people are responding to. You don't get over-invested in any given feature because yeah, you're just not exactly. in it that long. And, and you can decide how much energy to put into it based on how people are actually utilizing it. But when I think about CI, CD pipelines, that whole integration, continuous deployment and so forth, I just don't include the database in that. It almost seems like it operates at a different pace. Yeah, we it, need to make database changes, but not at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I have a colleague who refers to this as a two-speed uh, deployment pipeline, hmm. which I think really makes sense. Like we can go really, really fast when we're working with the application layer, but then every time we have to make a change to the database... Uh, <laughs> Hang on, just a sec. <laughs> exactly. Like this is going to take a while. What can we do to work around this? And that is a lot of people in implementing agile and implementing DevOps. They focus on the low hanging fruit first. What's the easiest thing to do? And that's the application tier because sure. it's much more obvious. If something goes wrong, how do you roll back? Because yeah. things like the blue green deployment model, they work really, really well. We're going to, you know, roll out to this set of servers over here. If it doesn't work right, we're just going to flip back to the old set of servers. Mm -hmm. But with database changes, a little tricky. Generally, we've got one central source of that data. Yeah. And it, and it, ain't, it ain't rolling back to anything. And data has usually changed. It only goes forward. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of when people start thinking about doing DevOps with a database, things like that, you know, they'll start out with the best of intentions and then that kind of scares them, grinds them to a halt. But it absolutely it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. um, and this is really good news because this means you really shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to deploy changes at night and on the weekends all the time. You should be able to deploy changes during the day and have users not notice a thing until someone else decides to make that feature visible. And you can totally do this with database changes as with application changes, you just have to use different techniques. So it's just sort of an integrate as you go thing, the same way that the devs do it. You can be making changes uh, you know, sort of asynchronously and, and not affecting things until you're ready. Exactly. Yeah, hmm. that's very much the idea. And uh, so folks have been writing about this for a while. I was delighted the other day. I found a blog post by Martin Fowler and uh, I was looking up the, you know, there's an old DevOps quote of if something hurts, you should do it more often. Right. Uh, who was that? It was Adrian Cockcroft, right? The guy who originally, original architect of Netflix. It's like, oh, I didn't realize that was where it came from. That was one of the things I was wondering is where did this come from? Yeah. Well, he was the guy, he was also the guy that says when we started calling the developers at 3 a.m. for an outage, a lot fewer 3 a.m. outages. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I have found that to be true myself. And I have heard several people be like, one of the important things for cultural change is using services like PagerDuty. <laughs> nice. Well, and having everybody in on it, right? Like, right. best thing I ever saw bringing a dev into an ops center during a crisis on a Saturday was that they invariably come out the other side of it saying, wow, your job's really hard. 
and you need more information. Like you clearly can't see enough about how yeah. the, the application is running that you're essentially guessing. Like they, they invariably come away with, we need to build you a better dashboard. Although, right. and, by, and by the way, like I, I always meant to write a book called DevOps with parties. And it's supposed to be like, when do you throw the party? When, when operations and development show up at the, at the feature planning meeting saying we both, we want the same feature. When both those guys are on the same side of a feature, throw a party. Like that's a good day. <laughs> that is a good day. That is a good day. Yeah. And for folks listening, the point isn't some people hear this and they're like, but the, the point, you know, developers are people too. We shouldn't page them all the time. And the point is nobody should be going to the <laughs> data yeah. center on Saturday. And if we make everyone aware of all the problems, a lot of times we can work things in a way that we can really reduce anyone going to the data center on Saturday. We can reduce the number of times that we're actually getting paged in the middle of the night. So uh, the idea isn't that everyone should sit together. That's not when you throw the party is when everyone's at the data center on Saturday. Yes. No, it's it's when nobody went to the data center on Saturday. That's a pretty yes. good time to throw a party. It's a distributed party. Yeah, there you go. That's, so this yeah. this. Blog post by Martin Fowler quoting uh, the he's, he's talking about why yeah. it's true that if something hurts, you should do it more often, although it's a little counterintuitive. And he actually in his post, he starts talking about the database, which I didn't even realize. He was like, this is a great example of it, because if you put together a lot of database changes into one deployment, when something goes wrong, figuring out what to undo is really hard, especially if data has changed. Right. But. If we decompose this into a lot of small tasks, each of which is backwards compatible so that, hey, the old code works against this too. We don't have to undo the database change because we wrote these changes in a backwards compatible way. That makes the pain go away. So by doing these database changes more often, we learn to decompose them. We learn to reduce the change of them. Um, and I just loved that he used database changes as his example in that post. I was like, yes, yes, this, this message we... Folks haven't been picking it up because I think this post was from 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's finally time. Uh, we've finally progressed enough in the DevOps really, really moving into enterprises and small companies everywhere that it's people are realizing, yeah, we, we actually have to do this now because we have this two-speed culture and it just doesn't work to have this one part of our system that it really hurts when we touch it. Well, and, and I also feel like the other teams are moving faster now, having learned these lessons because they needed to learn them. Mm -hmm. And you kind of can't, we, I think as DBAs, we've been able to sort of stay out of it for a while, but I don't think we can anymore. I mean, you're now, you're now kind of the slowest moving piece in, in the system. And that can be really uncomfortable, especially for folks who are like, but I really am interested. You know, I don't want to become a generalist is sometimes the reaction I get from folks. Interesting. Um, I don't want to become a developer, which is fine. Yeah. So the good news is you don't have to become a developer. It will help you to become familiar with the tools that developers are learning and the units in which they work and to learn their language sure. so that you can talk to them. But you can really become a kind of internal consultant who is, as we were talking about, someone who really understands how data is processed, how data is flow, how data works and supports and delivers value to the customers. But you're not just doing the same job that you always Absolutely. did, sort of making sure that backups are running. Because the truth is, we don't really need anybody to make sure the backups are running anymore. We've yeah. got enough automation and monitoring tools and stuff out there. that and, and now we have more and more options. Do you want cloud services to manage your high availability for you instead of a person? 
Yeah, and, and and hence people people feeling very threatened. At the same time, there is a need in every organization for someone whose responsibility is data. Like the stewardship of data is not going away. Absolutely. Yeah. And Kendra, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. This episode of Run As is brought to you by SQL Intersection. Eight full-day workshops and over 40 technology-focused sessions make SQL Intersection a unique source of the best information for SQL Server from real-world consultants and members of the SQL Server team. You'll learn proven problem-solving techniques and technologies you can implement immediately, as well as learn about the future of SQL Server. Get answers to performance monitoring, troubleshooting, designing for scale and performance cloud, as well as the new features in the latest version of SQL Server 2019. It's time to determine your migration strategy, and SQL Intersection is the place to figure out the best way to do it. Come to SQL Intersection at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, November 18th to 21. Use code RUNAS to get a discount on your registration at SQLintersection.com. See you there. And we're back. It's RUNAS Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Kendra Little. And we're talking about how uh, the DevOps movement's coming to DBAs or has come to DBAs. I don't know how I would phrase that exactly. but It's kind of creepy to say it's going to get you. It's coming. <laughs> it knows where you sleep. <laughs> That's not what DevOps is all about, right? No. DevOps is supposed to be this like huggy culture yeah. of like supporting and communication. And I'm like, it's going to get you DBAs. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I think you hit on a bunch of important points here at the, at the first half. It's just like a lot of the, the things that took up our time as DBAs a few years ago are more and more automated or available as services. And it's not like it eliminates the job. There's still this responsibility for the care and feeding of data, the proper protection right. of it and the proper sharing of it. Yeah. There's also more and more need for advisory on architecture mm -hmm. of how do we handle data for this new application or the next version of that application. Right. Because as, I mean, it's not just the number of databases expands, even within a single database platform, keeping up with the available features and the different ways you could use it between the cloud services, the on-prem options, all of that stuff is just overwhelming for people. So you really need someone in your organization who looks at, okay, what should we be doing next? Right. What are the risks with that? What are the benefits of it? What are the considerations we have? So that is, you know, that's already tough and it's just becoming more and more challenging, I think it's very exciting. And and people do have the option of uh, different levels of specialization with that because innovation is happening so quickly that you could do this with just Microsoft products sure. easily, right? Or you could go cross-platform, cross-cloud, cloud? Did I yeah. say plowed? Cloud? <laughs> Platform yes. cloud kind of became one word. Cloud. I, I buy that. I'm there. I'm with you. So you can really choose your scope at this. And there's going to be someone who needs your help, too. And if you are a person who understands data, that is just a huge and vast opportunity right now. Sure. Yeah, I know. And, and it, not only just the domain knowledge of the data for your given organization, but just the mindset of how you protect data as a whole. Like that, that's, a, that's a thing all by itself. Can you do that well? But you do have to be open for change to make this work, right? You can't just do things the way we've always done them. And that is the the big change that is really rippling through the database administrator world, right? Um, for years, we were service providers who, you know, IT's job was just to keep things running. And our customers were, you know, business users and the customers, they decide what to do. We just keep things running. Right. That is, that is, we have to be open to change and we have to really initiate that change ourselves and really start 
suggesting things and keep suggesting things uh, about changing what we do. I don't know how anyone argues against either responsibility to providing customer value. Because if you're not direct, you know, I'm, I've done enough consulting where one of the first questions I ask of any member inside of an organization like that is, how does the company make money? Because I'm always staggered when there's folks that just don't know how this company <laughs> makes money. It comes from, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> there's this guy. Yeah. There's a big bag with dollar signs on it. Yeah. It just sort of appears out of the sky. But, but It's deposited in my bank every month. <laughs> because it, especially from and it, when you think about the responsibility towards data, invariably this data is somehow tied to the value proposition of the company. Like it's, we've always known it was valuable, but if you don't, you should really know that direct association. It's a great place to start mm -hmm. just understanding that, that, that this is how this company makes money. And this is the role that data has in it. That's why we're right. busy protecting it. And you know, it, it has its little shrine with white lab coated priests that protect it. Right. Yeah. I think it was about five years ago now that there was this people started talking in the database community about recovery point objective and recovery time objective. Mm -hmm. A lot of a lot of Microsoft DBAs that we love an acronym. We yeah. love an acronym. <laughs> and so RPO and RTO, like this it really spread throughout the community and people started thinking about it. But the truth about these metrics is it's really essentially uh, how much data can you lose in the worst case and how long can you be down in right. the worst case. But the truth about these is inherent in these metrics. What these metrics are talking about is the business value of the data. It's yeah. a way to measure business value. If this is offline for an hour, how much is it going to cost the business in lost revenue is yes. really what we're talking. And they are very important uh, metrics for data folks to understand. And one of the big roles of data folks is to prompt when, when it isn't known what these things are to really prompt that discussion and say, we need to know these about different data sources. Yes. And, and how, you know, what is the consequence of losing this data? Uh, we lose our license as a business. Okay, so important, you know, like, but I, how many times do people, again, don't know those sort of core facts about right. what the regulatory regime is that we live in and why, when, and why the consequences of making mistakes in this regime are significant? And there's a new factor to this. Well, it's not really that new. Um, but there's an interesting factor about regulations, especially in the United States that I recently learned about that I think is really interesting. Um, so we think of uh, the government as kind of, you know, setting these rules that we have to follow. Mm -hmm. In some cases, they are also setting out frameworks that we can voluntarily adapt and follow and use to justify things that we want to do. Right. So more and more in the U.S., although we don't have regulations like GDPR, or as strong as that in the United States. There's some stuff happening at state level, like with the California Privacy Act, but we don't have a nationwide you know, GDPR. But we do still have information that uh, governments are developing about rules for government agencies that they must follow. But they're basically like, we're writing these so private business can follow these as well, because you probably should. Right. Yeah, and 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 you know, don't get blindsided by a law, right? Like th these things may well show up as laws at some point, but same time, building out this guidance first makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, we've clearly hit a tipping point with information online and and the effects of all of this infrastructure that we are going to build some rules. So it's it's good to think about it. And it, I I totally get this relationship to the DBA around all of this. This right. is the the stuff they're talking about is the stuff you store and take care of. Yeah. 
So even if you're not working in a regulated industry where you can point to something and be like, look, we really have to follow this, there's still guidelines you can pull out, including things like GDPR, but mm-hmm. guidelines you can pull out and say, look, we've got agencies saying, hey, they, this has to happen for federal government. This is really something everybody should be following. We should follow this too, yeah. as well as coming up with connections to your own customers on how following this will protect them, how following this will benefit them, and really tying it to to business value in that way as well. Because the truth is, other folks just don't have time to do this. Right. Yeah. So it's it's really an essential part of our role, and it's not always going to be ex- successful the first time that you suggest a project. So if you're like, hey, we should. Uh, Start getting our database code and source control. Right. I was going to ask that because you were talking earlier about, you know, sort of understanding more about developers. The, right. The, the, it's not their, it's the practices that I think are interesting. Stuff like source control. Yeah. I mean, is that, and, is that, do you see that as a reasonable goal these days that, that, that uh, schema can live in source control? Oh my goodness. It drives me insane that this isn't normal for yeah. everyone to have all of their code in source control. Right. It's So when I started out back at my original job, we had all the database code in source control and this was almost 20 years ago now. <laughs> so, I mean, I was very lucky. I learned that it was normal to have all your code in source control right. and that for any change, you would be able to figure out, hey, who checked, who authored this change? Who checked it in? What was the path of this change to deployment? Right. Even when we were doing waterfall development, we had that. Now we were using tools like VSS yes. <laughs> for source control. There were some things that weren't ideal. Well, you know, I, I the fun part about being an interviewer for so long is that I actually once got a chance to interview Brian Harry in front of an audience. And I literally opened with so source safe and, and the room exploded. Because it's and it's a funny gag. Like I've just literally done a gag at one of the most brilliant people's ex- ever I've ever oh. read expense. But I'll tell you that he answered that question so elegantly. And what he, you know, the point he came down to was it was a good enough product that people used it for things that nobody would ever intended it to be used for. <laughs> yes, you know. They, well, and it enabled us to do critical things, things. like source figure out who schema. authored this code, yeah. who checked it in, how did it get to it's production. Awesome. It allowed us to allow people to collaborate in different ways without all using the same dev environment, right? It was very, very powerful, uh, even though we have progressed uh, quite a long way from that technologically in terms of options. So the the thing about databases, though, is a lot of people just aren't lucky enough to start working in an environment like that. So they start working in an environment where none of the database code is in source control. Mm -hmm. Uh, Redgate does a state of database DevOps survey every year, and as of the last survey, about 50% of responders said their databases was in source control. I talk to people who say that number is very optimistic and very high. They're like, yeah, we think people were were, <laughs> were kind of like, oh, sure. we have." Oh, yeah, source. we got that. I, it comes in a spray bottle, right? I squirted it on the database the other day. <laughs> I have consultants who are like, maybe 20% of my yeah. clients have their database code in source control. So if you don't have your code in source control, It's okay. You don't have to be deeply ashamed, but you should fix this. It is very fixable. You absolutely should fix this. And once you do fix this, you can start doing things like 
using branching and source control with databases to do development in ways that you can actually experiment on code before you check it in. You can use pull requests to get review of your code. You can develop pipelines that deploy your code and dynamically create different environments. Look, I was fine with you saying I should have a copy of the schema in the source control, but you mean I actually have to use that schema too? That's just crazy talk, Ms. Little. It it actually makes life much easier and more fun, I think. So I know it's, it's insane. But it's not a trivial thing, right? Like you are talking about changing the way that databases get modified. A little bit, a little bit. I mean, it kind of depends how you're, you're already doing it. Right. Um, some people are, uh, and you have a choice when you set up, this is, I think, also what kind of blocks people from getting their database code into source control. So you're like, okay, uh, she's right. I should have my database code and source control. I'm going to get started. And then you realize, wait, I'm confronted with a choice. There's not one single obvious way how to do this. No. There's multiple patterns for yeah. this. And, and <laughs> There's all sorts of different tooling out there, which often follows one pattern or the other, and some things are hybrid. So you have to de- determine, do I want to use a state-based approach to managing my code and source control? Do I want to use a migrations-based approach to it? Or do I want to use a hybrid of the two? And sometimes just... Uh, the fact that people are immediately confronted with a choice stops them, installs them. Sure. And I would say, if that is stalling you, just pick one. <laughs> just oh, pick nice. one and go. You can always change it later. Yeah. So should we get some definition here? Making a choice that isn't the perfect choice is way better than making no choice at all. But state-based versus migration-based? Like, what's the difference? Ah. So with state-based, there's uh, differences in the way that we store state-based in-source control, as well as differences with the way we deploy it. So I'll explain both. With state-based, we are always storing a a full copy of the schema in-source control. So what you actually have in source control for a table is a create statement for the table that has all the columns in the table, all their data types, all their indexes, all their constraints. Mm -hmm. When you do the deployment for state, What the tooling does is it looks at what you've got in source control, and it has all those object definitions. It looks at the target you're deploying it to, and the tooling figures out it's like Google Maps or Apple Maps, if you're so inclined. Okay. Oh, (laughs) what is the, it's Waze. What is the fastest way between the state in source control and your definition or your destination, your target? And it just dynamically figures that code out for you, and then you can deploy that dynamically generated code. Nice. Now- much like ways, <laughs> you may not always like the directions it gives you, right? You may be like, oh, why did you do it that way? That's not good. So you'll have to, in the state-based model, you'll have to review the directions it has and figure out if you want to do workarounds ever to say, no, I did not want to make that left turn. Thank you very much. So that's the state-based approach. Okay. As opposed to... The migrations-based approach gives you more control because in the migrations-based approach, you are writing individual migrations. So instead of storing in source control, create table with the full table definition, you're storing in source control, alter table, add column, last modified date. So now you're owning the change script rather than generating the change script. Yeah. And often tooling will help you write that code, Mm -hmm. right? It might help you compose that code, but you get to customize it. So if you're creating an index and you're like, I want to create that index online, you can add that keyword and very tightly control it. Mm -hmm. If you want to load a little bit of data at one time, wait a while, load a little bit more data, that's really easy. 
goes in a migration script like any other, because what's actually going to get deployed is the exact code that you have written. Mm -hmm. The migration approach, I this is the one I learned with. And this is one of the things about database coding is people often like the one they learned with. Sure. I'm not saying I'm right in liking migrations. It's the one I learned with. Mm -hmm. It gives you really tight control if you do have a production sensitive system or if you have very large databases that you need to handle with care. But it does require that you have more expertise up front when authoring those changes. So this choice can get really tricky for people. But the truth is, you can start with one, you can do it for a while, you can change and do a different one, right? Like you're never making a choice that's irrevocable. So just pick one yeah. <laughs> and get going. Well, inevitably, you're starting with some, uh, you know, base state, one way or the other, this is the database as current. And then you can just carry state to state to state, or you can build a set of migrations. Right. Although I think you got when you start viewing through the chain of migration. I mean, I, I would almost think at times in the migration model, you have to kind of do a a balance forward and go, okay, state, and then continue on again. Now, do you give presentations on database DevOps? Because yes, in fact, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? All it is is pain and suffering, Kendra. <laughs> I've just suffered through enough of this stuff long enough that I'm like, you know, what's going to hurt is with too many deltas. Exactly. <laughs> A lot of these tools call it baselining. Right. You establish if you're starting to work with an existing database, you establish a baseline state. You do migrations, you might periodically re-baseline right. um, to uh, bring, you know, say, oh, we just want to start from this again. Well, um, so there's lots of different ways that tooling handles that, but a lot of them do use that term. For yeah, people no, I, who might I, I could see when you think about the bigger ecosystem of a long lived application, it's like when we get to a version that is now the oldest version in the field, like we've retired some other versions, so we don't ever need to revert back like that, those kinds of things where you do get to really a new baseline, a point where it's just like, mm -hmm. this is now the oldest version we need to think about. Right. It's not the exactly. newest version, but it's not also the oldest version. It is the oldest mm -hmm. one we need to think about. So you could baseline to that. And, and the, the truth about a lot of tooling these days, there's a lot of options out there. Sure. Uh, tooling that you're going to pay for is going to often be hybrid tooling. Mm -hmm. It's going to say, hey, we do a migrations approach, but we know that having the state of the database and source control is really useful for things like comparing this branch to that database. Right. So we also track that. Or we know it's useful for detecting merge conflicts and things like that. So <laughs> there's kind of these two... Um, major approaches, but I would say if you're actually investing in this and you're buying tooling, look and look at the hybrid aspects to it because each approach has this strength. A lot of the tooling actually brings in a little bit from the other approach to make up for any weaknesses in that approach. Yeah, I could see a hybrid approach. My my instinct, because I have too much dev in my head, is going state to state, but then also being able to insert yourself into certain generated scripts. Absolutely. Like yeah. I, I know exactly. this is a sensitive area of the database. I'm really concerned about how it's going to behave. So tell me what you would do. Okay, I want to make changes to this piece of it. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, also, things like just data updates are really weird and awkward in a state-based thing, right? Because it's not a schema change. Mm -hmm. I just want to update some values in a table. Shouldn't there sure. be a simple way to do that? So a lot of times hybrid functionality is in there to be like, yeah, if you want to just run a script, here's a way you can just run a script because... Yeah. Sometimes you really do just want to run a script. But also, <laughs> when I'm going to write that script, i got to make sure that it only runs once. Like, that, yes, it, exactly. that it has a validator that says, before you run this, make sure it hasn't already been run. Because right. running, running twice bad. 
That, so you either have to write it to be idempotent or the tooling has to help you in that, yes. that aspect too. Did you like my use of the word idempotent I'd there? Have, I was going to say deterministic, but okay. If you're going to do idempotent, I'll let you do idempotent. I'll stick with deterministic. I'm, I'm only 99% sure I used it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> There's still a little doubt in there where I'm like... Somebody could tell really us sure. otherwise. <laughs> sure. Yeah, there's non definitely non-deterministic changes where I could run this each time and I would get a different result, like rehashing something over and over again versus a deterministic result where it's always going to land in the state that we desired. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there's with each model, there are always there's still room for intelligence. Like mm -hmm. sometimes the, there is always that fear of like, if we get the code into source control and we start doing automated deployments, what will my role be, right? Because my role was to execute the deployment script. Yeah. No, 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 don't worry. No. <laughs> There's still definitely the needs for a lot of human intelligence here. The tooling is, like the, the thing about data is you have all these weird considerations that you need to um, think about in terms of, okay, well, how, like if we run this command against this table in production, is it going to lock up the table a whole lot? Like what is the user impact of right. this going to be? Is there a different way we could write it? You need a lot of human brains for that and problems like it. Oh, we want we need to change the data type of a column. How do we actually pull that off if it's in the clustering key? No, don't worry. You're still yeah, going to need. You're going to be all right. Because yeah. you could do this in so many different ways. The tooling has no way of knowing what is the best way for you and your customers. Well, and even if you got a bunch of that stuff automated, like I don't know any DBA that's ever gotten to the bottom of the to-do list ever. Like ever, there's just there's stuff you've never gotten to, right? That that if given some more automation, so you had a little more headspace, and they're always preventative things too. When's the last time you rehearsed a recovery? Yes. So these are things that, admittedly, we should be doing instead of browsing Reddit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say that database folks never spend time browsing Reddit while the monitoring system is up on the screen, making them look busy. Yep. There's a lot of, lot of wiggly lines, lots of wiggly lines. Just like everybody else where people do. But if you actually do have enough, you know, if you get out of the reactive mode, a lot of the problem is that time when we're browsing Reddit is simply a resting point yes. between putting out fires. Yeah. Well, and you just want to rest your brain before the next thing pulls you away. So if you can get out of that reactive firefighting mode all the time, you've, you've helped share the responsibility for this. You're part now of a team that does a lot of proactive work, as well as there's other people to help firefight. Then you get into the mode where you can be like, hey, I'm actually going to dedicate this morning on three weeks to doing this project where I validate that my database is restored and I start automating it so that this just happens from now on. And right. then I can tell my boss that we do this now and we can all talk about how awesome we are. Yeah. Higher confidence that things work the way they're, they're supposed to. Like there's all those good things that come of that. And it, and it's, I mean, I'm literally rolling out old Stephen Covey seven habits thing, right? This is all, you know, quadrant three stiff it, it, stuff. It doesn't act on you. Uh, it's, it's not sexy. It's just, these are all the preventative things that we could be doing more of. Yeah. And, uh, and, and everything would be better for it. Like you, you started having more and more time. I do think people get addicted to the crisis though. The, the, the hero well, they, they, syndrome. A, a, you have an organization that values heroes too. Like we tend to celebrate those heroes rather than recognize you should not have needed to be heroic for this to happen. Mm -hmm. But also that, uh, that it's a rush. You know, the nice thing about a crisis, you know what to work on. Like there's not a lot of decision making there. It does put you into the now. It yeah. does put you into the now, that's for sure. Well, and I definitely remember some production incidents where, you know, after it was over, 
I could actually feel, you know, the chemical changes in my body very strongly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, but it, and it, and it, I won't say it was, it's addictive, right? Like in, in operations, we get to this place where it's like my favorite days where we fought a fire all day. Like I feel productive that we, we battled through this problem, right? Yeah. It's, it's quite different than flow. I mean, people talk in a different way. And and I don't know that people who really, truly love that ad- adrenaline rush, I don't know if they would actually be interested in flow. Yeah. Uh, I think it was folks at Google who were writing about this. It was in some of uh, the Dora reporting about, they did some research in the State of DevOps report that just came out, the 2019 report about, they did a new research model on productivity. Uh, so Dr. Forsgren, Gene Kim, Jess Humble, they were looking at, Oh, and I've missed some names. There's more people who worked on the report this year. Um, I think Jesse Frizzell did some too, but I digress. Uh, but they were looking at, you know, what makes a productive day. And a lot of it was this idea of uh, what makes, you know, what is being in the zone. Yep. And a lot of it is the ability to uh, not constantly be firefighting. So there's there's the flow of people who enjoy this sense of building something. And then there's this different flow that is the people who are really, really into the firefighting and love that being in the now, that adrenaline rush. Yeah, the the, the adrenaline rush. And yeah, I don't want to discard either thing, right? They're both useful and important and valued in the organization, but... You don't don't mistake, you know, people valuing the fact that you're good in a firefight for the idea that we should have more firefights. The the truth is, I think a lot of organizations, a lot of business owners, a lot of customers want to get rid of the firefights, though. Yes. Um, right. You you as the, I mean, and we know this just from being customers, right? Mm-hmm. When uh you are accessing a site and it is much slower than normal, it is frustrating. Yeah. And not, it was not good for business to have the firefight. I'm grateful right. that we were able to get to the other side of it, but it would have been better if it was not necessary. Yeah. And and, and this gets into the, sort of getting into those post-disaster debriefings. Like, how do we not have this happen again? What have we got to do that differently that that decreases the risk? Right. Yeah. The, the rise of the site reliability engineering team is something that I'm really interested in learning more about. They are... Not necessarily firefighters. So for folks who haven't, I, and I don't know how many database folks have actually thought a lot about site reliability engineering. I'm I'm still just learning about it. The Stack Overflow Dev Survey from this year, uh, they reported that site reliability engineers seem very happy. They like their jobs. <laughs> They're not really looking for a change. <laughs> That's really interesting, isn't it? And they aren't really as much of the the firefighters. And obviously, I think I think it's clear that these folks are not having those dreadful postmortems because right. I have been part of the dreadful postmortem, which was like, all right, yeah. who who are we going to blame for this? Yeah, <laughs> who who needs to die? <laughs> who did that on the carpet? And <laughs> and 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 we're going to point at it with everyone in the room. Yeah, that's it. We're all going to get it. So they really are doing this art of figuring out like, okay, this bad thing happened and it's partly how do we prevent it from happening again? But it's also just like figuring out, okay, is it likely to happen again? Because that's something that from the dreadful postmortems we often left out is, okay, we we really messed this one up. Is it actually likely? Do we actually need to change anything is a valid question that should be asked because sometimes 
adding a process onto something is not going to make it any better. Right. And that's the truth. Sometimes, absolutely, you should change a bunch of things. But it really, I mean, like, you really need to be open to all of the different possibilities, um, as well as the answer not being laying a new process on top of things. Because that's what I remember from all of those, the old postmortems was that the solution was inevitably to make deploying changes harder. Right. Yeah. Turns out that's actually not functionally going to work out. At, at the same time, being more careful is not a strategy either. Yes. Yes. We need to figure that. I think that taps into something important. Um, we need to figure out, we can't just add cognitive load onto people. We can't just make people paranoid. That actually doesn't fix it. Right. Being more careful isn't the solution. Yeah. So the thing is we can add new rules as long as those rules are code that simply executes, mm-hmm. right? And spits good messages when it's a problem. But, you know, things that people need to remember so that they have to be more careful, like that's not a feature. That's not, that doesn't make, that doesn't increase joy. Right. Well, and it, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, it, it's going <laughs> to fail. You've, you've come up with a solution that will not succeed. I am a huge fan of education. Like, I yeah. love it. I love to learn. I love teaching. But the truth is, the amount of things that a human being can reasonably remember while doing their job is pretty finite. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Well, Kendra, we've had a good time. I've really enjoyed talking to you about this subject. Like, there's a lot to know and a lot of ways to think about it. Uh, some resources we could poke people at if they want to. They're, they're in the database space and they're trying to get better. Where do you send them? Oh, when people are looking at getting started with DevOps, where do I send them? Okay, so this is not going to come out in a prioritized order. My my favorite recent site for cultural change, because sometimes the, the questions people ask is, ah, how do I change people? My favorite recent site for that is actually the uh, Team Topologies site, and they have a new book that's out. And they have Venn diagrams that's really cool, mm-hmm. uh, different patterns that teams can interact with. And they have anti-patterns and uh, positive patterns. And a lot of them, there's search for the word DBA or database, and you'll see different ways that people in DevOps can uh, come together and work. On SQL Server Central, if folks are Microsoft data platform people, they have a lot of resources there, which are totally free on uh, database DevOps to look at, too. So I do often point people there. But also, there's some really good books. So I know you're having Gene Kim on an upcoming Soon, the new book, The Unicorn Project. Yeah. And I'm actually a huge fan of his original book, too, The Phoenix Project. So if you're just looking for inspirational material about, like, what is this all about? I still really, really love The Phoenix Project, and I'm looking forward to it. Great book. The way I've described it is don't read it for the love story. Uh, Read it as an inspiration that you can get better. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And this is the truth is you really, really can like it can be there's some hurdles you have to get over. But the truth about a lot of these hurdles is that once you get over them, once you do do things like we've got the code and source control, things actually get a lot easier. Right. (laughs) Like, yeah, you've got more stuff you can do. You've got more ways you can improve. But sometimes some of these things you get past the tough part and you're like, wow, why didn't we do this five years ago? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's like a breath breath of fresh air. Suddenly it's like, you're okay. We're fine now. It's better. Yeah, exactly. Um, so those are some of my my favorite sources. We also have a DBAL podcast for DBAs out there. Uh, it's DBAL uh, podcast with uh, two fellows named Chris, who are friends of mine, who uh, talk about all about database DevOps and podcasts all the time. So uh, that's a fun one, too. It's totally, totally free as well. Awesome. Kendra Little, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Richard. I am so glad to have been here. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. 